Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 98, Broadstrokes. Last time, Hitler sought to separate Italy from any kind of alignment against him with Britain and France. The latter countries were making it easy. When Italy began invading parts of North and East Africa, Britain and France screamed foul and used the League of Nations to punish the would-be restorer of the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, Hitler, at first, stayed quiet, not criticizing, and then encouraged Mussolini to go on his own way. To the German leaders' thinking, the republics could not understand the destinies of great men. France, more than Britain, was concerned, as it was the neighbor of this wayward country. Yet in 1936, France turned its focus to Nazi Germany, and its fear increased. That's because, just after dawn on March 7, 1936, as Germany was readying for the Olympic Games to be staged in Berlin, Hitler sent nine infantry battalions, and only a few planes, into the demilitarized Rhineland in western Germany. The generals around Hitler panicked and tried to persuade their leader to order the forces out, as reports came back that the French, with their much larger army, were mobilizing a nearby force. And in fact, Hitler almost gave the order to retreat. But then he was counseled by Foreign Minister Konstantin Neuroth. The Foreign Minister advised, waiting, to see if the French actually moved troops into western Germany. If they did, then Hitler could order the retreat. For five days, nerves were tense in Berlin. It was put out through diplomatic channels that Germany's reoccupation was only in response to the Franco-Soviet pact of the year before. This clouded the German move enough to halt France from taking any action. It did not help that Britain would not support any military action of France. Back to France, if the coming civil war in Spain was won by the militarists, then France, currently governed by the Popular Front, led by Blum, would be surrounded by fascist governments. So, on July 21st, the current liberal government in Madrid sent a request to Paris asking to purchase 20 aircraft, along with arms and ammunition. Blum readily agreed to this and contacted the French air minister, But then, Bloom went to London on July 25th, and when he came back, having heard from London, the French cabinet voted down Bloom's decision. Then the cabinet went one step further and made it illegal for the French government to send any arms to the liberal Spanish. That very same night, Berlin and Rome decided they would, in fact, send aircraft to General Franco. What we now know was that the meeting of Bloom and his foreign minister, Delbos, with London, which had been scheduled for a long time before this, was to discuss Germany's reoccupation of the Rhineland. The British, represented by Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, Foreign Minister Anthony Eden, Chancellor of the Exchequer Neville Chamberlain, and Under State Secretary in the War Office Duff Cooper, wanted to discuss a possible five-power agreement. That included Berlin. The Germans could keep their troops in western Germany, but would have to promise the other four that no other territory would be sought. 
Yet the conversation could not help but turn to the situation in Spain. The British government stated that if the French Popular Front government got involved with the Spanish Popular Front government over the question of civil war, then they, the British, would not interfere or would not help either side. There was no threat given, just the fact that the British would not interject themselves. This effectively tied the hands of Paris, as London had intended it to. For the British had their own question of what to do if civil war came to Spain. Britain had significant resources tied up in Spain. Just days into the outbreak of the conflict, Eden was told that a private British company had agreed to sell four Fokker planes to the rebels. The Foreign Office did not like this, but it wasn't illegal, so Eden set out to make it illegal. A non-interventionalist policy was written out, and Eden approved it on July 24th. But the entire situation then became murkier. The Tories in London did not object to the Spanish rebels as much as the French did. Of course, they weren't their neighbors either. Eden, soon after hostilities started, told the German Charge Day Affairs, Prince Otto von Bismarck, that the supposed rebel leader, General Franco, was pro-British, so it mattered not to them who won. Also, Mussolini told London that Italy had no wish to use the civil or military strife in Spain as an excuse to grab Spanish lands, certainly not to occupy the Balearic Islands. So, to London, there was no downside. The upshot of all this was, when it became clear that German and Italian planes were heading to Spain to assist the rebels, Eden made no protest. Of course, there was more to the British position towards Spain. As Madrid was not currently being governed by a conservative party, the Tories lumped it in with socialists and communists. Their fear was the possible spreading of such thoughts to other European countries, and then to Britain. During all this, Hitler had his diplomats watching the British, the French, as well as the French press, that openly debated whether Paris should arm the legitimate government in Madrid. As such, Bismarck tried to get Eden to do his dirty work by complaining that Berlin had proof that Paris would be sending planes to the Spanish government. But Eden, to his credit, did not fall for this, saying he too read a pro-German right-wing newspaper, namely Britain's own The Daily Mail. Berlin also watched the talks going on between London and Paris, and it was satisfied with the British line that all other countries should leave well enough alone. This was purely a question for the Spanish. The British Royal Navy towed the line as well. When Admiral Francois Dallon in August spoke to the first sea lord, Admiral Chatfield, who favored Franco, he expressed his fears that Italy might try to take the islands east of Spain, and Germany might try to take the Canary Islands. However, Chatfield's boss, the first Sea Lord of the Admiralty, Sir Samuel Har, replied that even these issues were not a British concern. As soon as the British ships were done retrieving refugees, they were to leave Spanish waters and not return. Of course, this policy would change when it became clear to London 
that Berlin and Rome were helping strenuously Franco. When the talks between the two admirals finished, only then did Paris move forward to start the process to make it illegal for any French entities to send arms to the Spanish government. And the British weren't done making sure that everyone else stayed out of Spain. On July 29th, when a request came from Portugal to purchase arms, Eden turned it down, suspecting, rightly so, that the arms were really for Madrid. And on August 28th, the last country agreeing to not sell arms to either side in Spain, Mussolini's Italy, signed the Non-Intervention Agreement. A Non-Intervention Committee, or NIC, was quickly established. It was comprised of the ambassadors of Germany, France, Italy, Portugal, the USSR, and Britain. However, until the Non-Intervention Agreement was signed by all, France continued to send arms to Madrid, matching Hitler's efforts. The German leader, when he heard of this, reacted by saying that France was assisting a fellow Red or Communist government. As the establishment of most European countries feared the rise of the Communists, it was hoped by Berlin that this would shame Paris into discontinuing its efforts. But it did not. Only when Italy signed was the flow cut off. During the Spanish Civil War, only Britain, out of the signatories, tried to maintain the spirit of the agreement. Then there was Soviet Russia. Though Stalin had not cared or focused on Spain before the war, that did not mean that there wasn't any Marxist influence in the Iberian country. The words of Marx and Lenin had found a home for some in Spain, as the people had struggled under dictatorships and poverty. To be sure, Stalin had encouraged the people of many countries, France, the United States, and Britain, to create their own popular front organizations to then run for control, lest the far-right fascists come to power. Yet anything specific stopped coming out of Moscow since 1928, given Stalin's mistakes in China and when he turned his back on Trotsky, the man known throughout the world for calling for a world revolution. And though the message from Moscow was curbed, it was still being issued, just fine-tuned. Stalin wanted the working people of those various countries to attack not those on the right, but those on the left. He wanted the liberals, the social democrats, and indeed any independent leftists who would not join a tightly controlled political entity controlled by him to be destroyed. Only when a party was grown and under his control should it go after the political right and attempt to achieve legitimate power. This dream of controlling large parts of the world, Stalin inherited from the czars, particularly Nicholas II. During World War I, he, the Tsar, sought to use that conflict to grab much of the Balkan Peninsula, which might lead to control of parts of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey for sure, and then, who knows, North Africa and or the Middle East. It was the old game, but Stalin sought to play it along different, less obvious lines. Which meant 
the Spanish Communist Party from 1935 to the outbreak of the Civil War the following summer had been trying to bring over voters from many other parties. The left-leaning parties were picked at, but also those to the right. Those right moderates, like the conservative petite bourgeoisie, were told of the advantages of joining the communists, who, after all, only wanted the best for the largest number of Spaniards. Namely, to help make sure the fascists did not come to power through a coup, which was exactly what was being attempted, starting in July of 36. So, as the Popular Front sought the moderate right voters, it was being helped by propaganda written in Moscow, but also by funds, also from the Soviet capital. This direct and indirect help was being sent to Paris, as well as Madrid. However, when the elections came in the spring of 1936, the communists only received 3% of the vote, equating to 15 deputies in the Cortes, the Spanish parliament. However, despite their poor showing, the Spanish officers, now leading the coup, shouted out that the entire civil war was, in fact, started by the communists, controlled by the Soviet Union. The rebels were really just trying to stave off Moscow's assistance. But, be that as it may, after the spring election, the communists still cried out for justice for the people, and for land and equality, which the right read as a takeover by the masses. War at this point was most likely inevitable. However, now that war was being waged, Stalin, like Hitler, like Mussolini, did not massively, militarily intervene right away. At first, Moscow contacted the various Popular Front associations throughout Europe and encouraged them to help the Popular Front government in Spain. Yet the man in Moscow was not leading in this endeavor. Willy Munzenberg, the most successful propagandist in Europe during the 30s, who had established several of the Popular Front movements, sought to buy used weapons for Madrid and asked for volunteers to help in the fight. All Stalin was doing, early on, was encouraging the work already started by Munzenberg. As for Moscow, its more direct help in the Civil War came in August. Now that the shooting had started, Stalin was waiting to see what Italy, Germany, and the French were going to do or not do. But then European communists the world over either started heading to Madrid to act as volunteers or began openly gathering material support. Only on August 3rd did the Comintern send out a call for all communists all over the world to head for Spain. The Soviet newspaper Pravda wrote on August 6th that Moscow's trade union had donated 12.1 million rubles, about $2 million, for the Spanish workers now that they were out of a job due to the war. In reality, it was going to the workers' militia and to anyone else who showed up to fight, despite their nationality. But Stalin's direct help was about to increase. On September 4, 1936, just into the Civil War, socialist Largo Caballero replaced José Giral, a liberal, as the premier. 
Caballero had spent time in prison for his communist views and goals and had recently met with and gave speeches to those fighting the nationalists. A fellow socialist wrote of Caballero, he retained in the eyes of the masses his mythical qualities and his pathos had started to work the miracle of a difficult rebirth of collective enthusiasm. Caballero's rise got Stalin's attention as a communist had, for the first time, become a part of the Spanish cabinet. The downside for the Republican government and its supporters was that, around this time, Franco's troops were pushing their way in a clockwise motion, starting at Seville in the southwest, and working their way north and then to the east. They were grabbing land closer to the center of the nation, just below the capital. Given that a socialist was now leading the government, but the nationalists were about to take the capital, Stalin decided to send his own military advisors to Spain to direct the Republican defenses. The Communist International backed this up by allowing communists and non-communists alike to use their well-established underground railroad. When the French communists heard of this, they helped out. Then many other French officials followed suit. Thus, this being the case, Stalin officially decided to help Republican Spain militarily by September 14th. Eleven days later, the first of five Russian ships, the Neva, entered Spanish waters, with food, arms, though camouflaged, and munitions. The Italians had a spy nearby, and he counted up the cases as they came off the ship. 3,000 cases of rifles, 4,000 cases of ammunition, and some aviation equipment. With the Soviets helping thus, the Republican government transferred most of its gold to Moscow, to the tune of some 510 tons. Yet most of this would end up in Paris, which would fund most of the day-to-day expenses of supplying the fight against the nationalists. Stalin added to this, a loan of $84 million. As for Russian boots on the ground, a high number was never achieved. At any one time, there were only about six to 800 Russian military advisors, in all never more than 2,000. This paltry number represented only one-eighth of what Berlin would send. As for Russian pilots, the first few came just before Hitler sent the Legion Condor. No, Stalin's main help, besides handling the finances, was the organizing and enlisting of volunteers. And yet, only about 60% of the volunteers were communists. The rest were simply inspired to fight to help stop the fascists from gaining power yet again. The first international brigade of volunteers, of which there would be a grand total of just under 60,000, went into action on October 23rd. Of course, Hitler and Mussolini used this uptick in the communist Comintern activity to justify not only their involvement, but its increase later that year. With the stage set for the first phase of the Civil War, it's worth backing up a bit to cover the main events. When the Spanish generals launched their coup d'etat, the initial plan was twofold. First, the men under them in garrisons throughout Spain and those in Spanish Morocco, would rise up and clash with Republican forces. Next, as the generals did not have the numbers, really, to win outright, 
They hoped that speed, the shock of the thing, and, quite frankly, their brutality would freeze their opponents with fear. As we have seen, that did not happen. But it must be said, the Republican government and its forces did not deliver a death stroke to their enemies either. What followed this lackluster military reaction by Prime Minister Cesares Quiroja, and remember we've gone back in time, was a defensive thinking in nature. Nor did he arm the two largest workers' unions, the UGT and the CNT. But to be honest, the Popular Front Prime Minister did not trust the socialist or even communist workers any more than he did the rebel officers. The word from Madrid to the workers was, stand down, and those that did would suffer at the hands of the rebel troops. Those that did not motivated the paramilitary forces near them to join hands, thus causing any nearby garrisons to surrender. As to specifics, General Emilio Mola ordered the Army of Africa to rebel at 5 a.m. on July 18th. Those on the mainland would wait 24 hours after that. Mola's thinking was that the troops in Morocco would secure their territory and then come to Spain. Their leader, General Franco, was unworried about how many of the men would join him, as most were mercenaries and would go wherever their paymasters told them to. Of this last group, the elite force was the Foreign Legion, comprised mostly of fugitives and criminals. The Foreign Legion, as many Spanish civilians would find out, carried their own light artillery. The rest of the African-based force were regulars of Moroccan descent, controlled by Spanish officers. The Moroccan town of Melilla was the first to fall to the rebels. However, General Romerales, a loyal Republican, found out about the plan, but couldn't decide if he should arrest the nearby leading rebel officer, Colonel Suege. But the colonel had no qualms. He arrested the general. Next, the main buildings were seized, and the Foreign Legion and the Irregulars attacked the location where the trade unionists resisted until they were all killed or surrendered. As the last pockets of resistance were cleaned up, Colonel Suege contacted his superiors, who contacted General Franco, who was in Las Palmas, in the Canary Islands, of these events. Franco replied, Glory to the heroic Army of Africa, Spain above everything, accept the enthusiastic greeting of those garrisons which join you and all the other comrades in the peninsula in these historic moments. Blind faith in victory, long live Spain with honor. Franco then had the necessary buildings near him occupied. Then, turning them over to General Orgaz, he set off, by sea, to the airport. Back in Meila, the Foreign Legion and regulars moved out to other garrison towns. The Spanish locals tried to resist, but had few arms. Many were shot on sight. Spreading out, mayors of towns were executed, as were any of those who opposed the rebel forces. The mayor of Melilla, returning from a casino, was arrested upon landing. The last two holdouts were the airport and the home of the high commissioner, Major de la Puente Bahamonde. The latter was the first cousin of Franco, but that did not save him from a bullet, on the word from Franco. 
That first night of the rebellion, some 189 people, mostly civilians, were murdered. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 99, War in Detail. Last time, after setting the stage of the Spanish Civil War and its major players, we backed up to cover the beginnings of the actual fighting. To be sure, Prime Minister Quiroja knew of the events in Morocco as of the afternoon of July 17th. The next day, at three in that afternoon, he set out the following message. And this was after ignoring the requests of the trade unions, the CNT and UGT, to give them arms. Trust in the military powers of the state. That Seville had been protected from any uprising, which was not true, and that anyone who hands out weapons without my approval will be shot. Not exactly a stirring message to bring the people under your banner. In reaction, the two trade unions not only went on strike, though it was hard to tell who they were protesting against, the rebels or the government that left them defenseless, but started digging up, literally, weapons hidden since 1934. Before too long, as the workers started resisting the rebels to protect their own, the prime minister it was rumored, began to lose, at least emotionally, the ability to deal with the ever-escalating clashes. Still, he did not change his stance on arming the workers. As previously stated, the troops of the rebelling officers were carrying out their orders, but only if the local situation looked promising. If local workers threw up barricades and showed some form of organized resistance, the attackers would back off, staying neutral. If the civilians did nothing, just kept their resistance to shouting, the military would come in, take the local town hall, and shoot anyone who gave them trouble, from the mayor on down to the average person on the street. It must be remembered that this conflict had been a long time in coming. Passions were up, but also the fear of retribution. It seems that it was better to kill a potential enemy than having to worry about them come at you later. Adding to the mix were the two bodies of additional troops, the Civil Guard with their police duties and the Assault Guard. The latter were specially trained and would tend to stay loyal to the Republican government, as these units were normally around big cities and had a strong connection to the civilian populace. The large city of Seville, located in Spain's southwestern corner, was important to the rebels' plans. It had to be brought under their control to be used as a springboard to advance on the capital, Madrid, some 532 kilometers, or 330 miles, to the northeast. The man responsible for placing Seville in the rebels' camps was General Cuellipo de Llano, the commander of the frontier guards. Working with Dayano was Jose Moreno, Spain's intelligence chief of staff, the real brains behind the coup. 
Using the confusion of the times, De Llano marched into the office of General Jose Fernandez de Villa Abrelle, commander of the military region, during the morning of July 18th, and asked him which side he was on. De Villa Abrelle couldn't decide, but De Llano could. De Villa Abrelle was arrested. A guard was put at his door. De Llano then proceeded to the parade grounds, where he found the 6th Regiment drawn up and armed. General De Llano went up to the regiment's colonel and congratulated him on anticipating his wishes. That's when the colonel told him he was ready to fight for the Republic. The general asked to talk to him privately, and then arrested him. Asking around as to who would step up and lead the 6th Regiment, De Llano finally found a man who said yes, a captain, who was also a phalangist, that is, someone who believed that Spain should become a fascist state and run by one person. With the infantry on his side, it was of little moment for De Llano to get the artillery units to join in. Then other phalangists came to the base and were given guns from the armory. With these combined forces, Seville fell to the nationalist or rebels. Just before the fall of the city, the assault guard readied to defend their position, but a few shells landing nearby changed their mind. They had nothing of the kind to return fire. Dayano promised them that all would be treated decently, but before too long, all those who had resisted were executed. As for the nearby civil guard, they joined the rebels, whence the assault guards capitulated. With the situation crumbling for the Republican forces, the main radio station called for peasants of the surrounding villages to join the fight. However, with the communists and anarchists still refusing to work together, each side backed away from a joint attack and instead fortified their own positions just outside of town. The rebels now held Seville and joyously claimed it so on the city radio. At nearby Malaga, along the coast, southeast of Seville, the assault guards there chose the rebel side. However, the workers, though barely armed, harassed the troops and ended up setting fire to buildings near their barracks. The garrison surrendered. To the east of Malaga, still along the coast, the civil guard there was declaring for the rebels. So the workers, like all over, asked for arms. The governor claimed that he had none to pass out. Either way, the destroyer Lepanto pulled into harbor and trained its guns on the headquarters of the Civil Guard. The rebel troops stood down. On and on, similar events played out within other cities and the surrounding areas. Roughly after the initial clashes, the rebels took under their control northern Spain, except for the most northern section as well as the northeast corner. The Nationalists also controlled a smaller section of the southwest corner around Seville, including the port city of Cadiz, and, of course, northern Spanish Morocco. This left the center and southern parts of Spain, including the capital, Madrid, to the Republicans. That is, except for the city of Toledo, some 72 kilometers, or 34 miles, southwest of the capital. The Spanish Balearic Islands, just off the country's east coast, went for the rebels. 
With the country divided along these lines, Prime Minister Cesare's Quiroja resigned. He put pen to paper to this effect at 4 a.m. on July 19th. As for the city around him, Madrid, the people stayed up late, the weather being sultry, and some of them tried to get on with living their lives. Yet others protested in the streets. Their protests were not against the nationalists, but against the Republican government and its seemingly inability to deal with the rebels, but also for its unwillingness to arm the labor unions. Did Madrid want to win this battle or not? Azana, the president of the Republic, asked his colleague and friend Diego Martinez Barrio, the president of the Cortes, to form a cabinet. However, Barrio chose as his comrades politicians from the political middle, or further right. The leftists were left out. It was Barrio's intentions to reach an agreement with the rebels that would bring the country back together. Right away, Barrio contacted General Mola and expressed his desire to begin peace talks. Yet Mola immediately turned him down, claiming he would be disappointing those he led. During all this, the protests continued in the streets of the capital, as the people were not happy with the choice of Barrio, nor with the fact that he left the socialists and the communists out of his government. Barrio fell from power that very day, as he recognized his lack of support. Azana once again turned to those he knew, and then asked one of them, Jose Giral, to form a government. Giral said yes, but warned that many of his comrades would not like his solution. As the sun rose on July 19th, Giral wrote up a proclamation that disbanded the army and then ordered all weapons to be handed over to the workers' organizations. After all, they were structured and highly motivated to take the fight to the rebels. Within hours, guns were being driven to the headquarters of the UGT and CNT. However, the workers were to find that most of the guns lacked bolts. To offset those non-functioning rifles, the rebels, or nationalists, themselves were not clear on who was locally in charge and exactly how Madrid was to be taken. Yes, the general plan was for those near the capital to hold until reinforcements could be brought up from other areas, but that was about it. For military men, there was very little planned out. Finally, General Fanjul arose on the afternoon of July 19th and declared himself in local command. As such, he went to the nearby barracks and spoke before the men, their officers, and the phalangists who came to support their cause. But when the assembly left the barracks, they were met by natives of the capital, who, though not heavily armed, offered up resistance. The crowds chanted, and a few of them shot at the troops. The rebels retreated back to their barracks. Hopefully those reinforcements would arrive with the sunrise. Meanwhile, as the conquest of the mainland lingered, General Franco was cleaning up Spanish Morocco. Having flown to Casablanca by a British pilot, the flight had been arranged by one of Franco's men in London, Franco received a report of the territory's current loyalty. All was not well. The general was warned not to land in Tangier, as that was not yet under their control. 
so instead Franco made for Tetouan in northern Morocco, just below Gibraltar, one of Morocco's two main port cities. While in flight, the general changed into his uniform. After landing, Franco met with his officers and received an updated report. Clearly, the mainland needed their troops, but as the Spanish Navy had not come over to the rebels, as hoped, aircraft were needed. So several men were sent to Germany and to Italy to make purchases, or asked for donations. When asked what to call their force, the best Franco could do was the Spanish non-Marxist army. But having a name that says what you're against is never as strong as one that declares what you are for. Thus, in time, the rebel forces would be dubbed La Cruzada. The next decision Franco had to make was what to do with all the loyalist prisoners in and near Tetuan. The general ordered that they all be placed in a concentration camp. Then, each morning, units of phalangists would come by and shoot a small group of prisoners. Back on the mainland, in other cities, men in uniform were proving the theory that, though honor is important, victory, and simply staying alive, was paramount. This normally requires the abandonment of honor and the engaging of deception. In the far northern town of Oviedo, though the coastline itself was declared for the Republicans, Colonel Aranda, the military commander there, convinced the governor and the leading citizens that he was for supporting Madrid. As such, he informed them that his orders from the capital were the following. He was to hold Oviedo, to keep their arms there, but to send the miners to the capital to help with the resistance. Aranda was taken at his word. The men lined up and marched out of town. As soon as they were gone, Aranda took control and passed out the weapons to those loyal to the rebel cause. The first one to be shot was the trusting governor. When the miners realized that they had been tricked, they double-timed it back home and began a siege that couldn't help but be personal. So as Madrid had to be wary of the nearby town of Toledo, which threw in with the rebels, the Republican-held Spanish North now had a rebel city in its midst. Deep in the heart of Castile country to the north, the town of Burgos fell to the nationalists, almost without a single person defying them. That did not stop the shooting of suspected loyalists. Waiting in Burgos were several prominent civilians, several of them the co-authors of the conspiracy to rebel. Looking up, the men were searching for the plane that would bring their new leader, the new head of state of Spain, General Sanjuro. But as they waited, word would eventually reach them that the general's plane had crashed upon takeoff from a Portuguese airfield. The plane burned as it came to a stop. The supposed new Spanish state was now headless. <laughs> 